Hey, architecture firm owners and emerging leaders, get ready for unparalleled insight into the development of a world-class architecture firm and a worldwide organization driving the digital transformation of the design and construction industry with Build Smart, the podcast that's changing how our profession operates. We share the incredible stories behind innovation in the building industry with my friend and co-host, Patrick McLaney, FAIA, former CEO of the international architecture firm, HOK. You know, Yamasaki's office or firm lasted during his lifetime. And when he passed away, I think that was the end of the Yamasaki office. Helmut did not want that. He wanted a firm that would live out and grow beyond the founders. In season one, discover the untold stories behind HOK's meteoric rise, from 150 employees in St. Louis to a powerhouse with over 1,900 staff members and 27 offices worldwide. You know, they weren't as polite as the Kojima people. That was just boom. And anytime you have a creditor, whether it's Kojima or the bank, that wants their money, unless you can raise money someplace else, you are out of business. Bankrupt bankrupt. And hold on tight for season two, where Patrick takes us on a new adventure as chairman of Building Smart International, shaping the future of digital transformation in the design, construction, and operation of built assets. Ian Howell, Ken Harold, and I, Ken was my technical representative from HOK. The three of us took a tour of Europe of five cities in five days. Very busy time. Simply follow the link in the show notes to subscribe to Build Smart Now and uncover lessons that will transform you and your architecture firm. Welcome to the Entree Architect Studio. Hi, my name is Mark Arlapage, and you are listening to Entree Architect Podcast, where every Friday, I speak with inspiring, passionate people who share their knowledge and expertise all to help you build a better business as a small firm entrepreneur architect. Entree Architect Studio is a series of special bonus episodes where I invite inspiring, passionate people to share their knowledge and information about the building products and the services to help you build better buildings. I'm glad you're here. Let's go see who's joining us today at the Entree Architect Studio. Who are you and what's your origin story? Hi, Mark. Uh, my name is V. Owen Bush. I'm the principal of Scan to Plan. I came about working with architects and engineers through a very sort of twisted uh, road. Uh, I, I guess I sort of came, came at this after going into virtual reality and coming out again. Wow. <laughs> that must have been some experience. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, you know, I, my, my background is really a creative technologist and uh, entrepreneur and creator. And I had, uh, I, I never know how far back to go with these, but let's yeah, just start. Well, you, have, you have a very deep entrepreneurial background. Yeah. How did that get started? What, where did it start? And then how did it get to scan to plan? I worked on one of the first 40 websites uh, back in web 1.0. So wow. this was 1994, 95, when the very first web browsers were coming out. So we actually, I worked at this company called Pseudo Programs, 
and we had the very first streaming media website. And so we worked with real networks and we actually had a 24 hour broadcasting. And, you know, so I worked in the internet. I kind of got sick of the internet because it was at the time still dial up and very slow and uh, yeah. the media quality was very low. I remember those days. Very, very frustrating. I started really focusing more on uh, broadcast uh, video and I wound up working at MTV. I had a show there called Amp that was on Friday and Saturday nights in the 90s. And from there, had a whole career as a composite artist, working on a lot of broadcast and things like that. I wound up working at the Hayden Planetarium as a composite artist, working on a show called Sonic Vision that we did with Moby. And that kind of got me into really officially working in kind of immersive media. Uh, and this really sort of predates, you know, most VR applications. So this was back in, I think, 2003. Then when I was working at the Hayden Planetarium, I was recruited by some professors here at Rensselaer Polytechnic Institute. They had gotten a large grant to make a planetarium show that takes people into the world of atoms and molecules. So I would say working at the at the Hayden, I was working with giant data sets that was the entire visible universe. So every star that we know of in the universe made this massive data set called the virtual universe. So I started working with giant data sets there. Then when I started working with the folks at Rensselaer, they were giving me giant data sets that were all atoms and molecules. So, you know, billions and billions of atoms all moving around. And so we were tracking those data sets and finding ways to visualize them, being able to show kind of a world that is never uh, actually can't even really be seen because it's too small for a camera to even perceive it when you're talking about nanoscale structures. So um, so then I started working with those kind of data sets. Then uh, I did a lot of work with video projection mapping, and that's kind of when I started really collaborating in architectural ways in terms of mapping video onto uh, different architectural forms and sculptures. Then uh, I started a virtual reality company in 2015 when mobile VR became possible using some of the work I had been doing and sort of translating it into a, a VR context. What I learned in, you know, the three or four years I was running that business, which was then acquired, was that the people that were getting a lot of traction in the VR space were actually more focused on the reality side of it than the virtual side of it. So they were really taking people to places they couldn't normally go. Um, uh, taking them to real locations, real places, and kind of bridging the gap. Um, so with my next company, we started focusing on 3D tours, uh, being able to transport people to uh, basically being able to do VR without the headset. So like being able to walk around spaces, see things from every possible angle, uh, just on your mobile device or on your laptop. And most of my clients there were real estate agents. And then once all the leaves fell off the trees, I had to figure out, you know, <laughs> how am I going to make a living in the winter when, when there are no, uh, when nothing's for sale and nobody needs to market their homes. So that's when I started collaborating with architects 
and using some of the same technology to, to you know, develop existing conditions documentation. Um, that, uh, you know, experimental process, you know, I, I live in Troy, New York. You really can't throw a rock without hitting an architect around here. Uh, and so there's yeah. a lot of, you know, really great friendly firms that kind of helped us get off the ground. And we quickly realized that, uh, the tools we were using, the, the Matterport was, you know, okay, I, I would say for, you know, conceptual space planning purposes, but really not uh, at the level of precision that was needed for really pro-level existing conditions. So at that point, we bought our first laser scanner, uh, the Leica BLK, started getting a lot of success with that. And then, uh, then we upgraded pretty soon to a like a RTC 360, which is a $85,000 scanner, started using that. We partnered with my friend, Brian Clapper, who's a structural engineer, and he really helped us to kind of get started in terms of understanding, <coughs> excuse me, our standards and um, how to really deliver um, exactly what architects need um, and also gave us a really great understanding of quality control and structural modeling, MEP modeling, things like that. So that, so we spent our first year kind of cohabitating with Clapper Structural and Socrates. Uh, they really got us, uh, got us going. Um, and, uh, you know, within the past year, we've moved back to Troy. We're now housed in the uh, AI Center of Excellence, um, which is a, a we have a cohort of other uh, AI-based startups here. We don't really actually use AI that much in uh, in our workflow. Our workflow is almost entirely manual, but we do use uh, what you would call uh, computer vision uh, and some machine learning to analyze our point cloud data sets, which we capture with the LiDAR scanners. We're able to use that to really verify and validate that each of the points is in the right location and that they're all accurate to within a millimeter or two uh, in the data set that we that we capture and and register. That's very interesting. The the um the accuracy is one of the things that separates you from, you know, just buying a Matterport or a, one of these other scanners and doing it yourself, right? That hiring scan to plan uh, you actually go to the site and scan the site or the building um, correct and and come back with a full 3d model which is accurate to reality correct yeah well we can deliver either uh bim or cad uh so we um we will generally model in revit and then output to We'll either just deliver the Revit model or we'll output to CAD sheets, or we can also output to other formats like SketchUp, 3D DXF files that you could open in programs like Rhino and Vectorworks and things like that. So we can pretty much work with just about any workflow that people have. I like to say that, you know, we have a solution for just about any scope, schedule, or budget. So now we have actually transitioned from Leica to working with uh, Trimble. And pretty much we're using uh, the Trimble X7 is our primary scanner that we use. 
reason we switched is that um, the process after you scan the process of generating this registered unified point cloud is called registration point cloud registration and that process for us using the Leica workflow was very, very cumbersome, especially with larger buildings. Any building that would be, you know, let's say over 20,000 square feet was very slow and cumbersome with the Leica software. And so the, um, the Trimble software does most of the registration in the field, and then we're able to very quickly... Um, confirm, validate, tighten up, and uh, clean the point cloud uh, before we deliver it on to our modeling team. So for for anybody who doesn't understand what you're talking about, <laughs> the, the point cloud, when you're talking about point cloud, that's the output of the scanner, right? So the scanner does its thing and it sends you back some information and that information is the point cloud of what's being scanned. Is that correct? There's a lot of different kinds of LiDAR scanning. Um, so I think maybe I should clarify there yeah, are, sure. what we use is called terrestrial LIDAR and we use what's called a kinetic LIDAR scanner. So, which is, which is quite different from the kind of LIDAR that you might have on your iPhone or your iPad. That's what's called solid state LIDAR. And it doesn't actually have, you know, a, a, a kinetic laser array which has a lot of fail safes in it to make sure that the data is not drifting. A lot of times, if you will use um, a solid state or, you know, even what they call a SLAM scanner stands for simultaneous location and mapping. Those type of scanners can very easily have what I call the banana effect where the wall just starts kind of peeling off <laughs> and then, it starts kind of curving around and instead of being straight, you're getting these sort of curved walls. And then before you know it, you don't know where, where the whole thing went sideways. You don't know uh, what data is good and what data is bad and what you can work with and what you can't. Um, there's really no way of verifying or validating that. So I'm sure a lot of people are experimenting with this kind of prosumer LIDAR but, you know, we don't recommend it just because, you know, it, it can be a, a real um, uh, a, a real trial and error process. And um, most of the folks we talk to don't have the they don't want to be doing trial and error on, you know, professional projects that they're doing. It's it, there, there's too much risk involved. So we're able to verify and validate every single point when we deliver a point cloud, it's sometimes over a billion points. And each one of those points can be verified and validated by the other points. So what we do when we go through a space is we have the, the LIDAR scanner is on a tripod. Uh, when it spins around for a, a number of minutes, uh, as it's spinning around, it's collecting about a, a million points each time. And then we move the tripod to the next location, which is going to have an overlap from the previous location of about 20 to 30% of the points that it captures are going to be duplicates of the points that were just captured. So those are going to overlap with the other points and verify and validate each other. So they all kind of get locked into each other, sort of snap together like Legos. That's 
that's the scanning process. And, you know, for, for us scanning a typical house is going to take about a, you know, maybe five to six hours on site, larger, you know, larger buildings. It's not really about the square footage. It's more about the complexity of the building, how many rooms it has, how many closets, things like that. How many, yeah. uh, we need a direct line of sight in order to document. So as long as we can get a direct, direct line of sight on anything, we can uh, capture it and then model it. So once you have that point cloud, the output that you're actually delivering, are you delivering that point cloud or are you delivering the Revit model or are you delivering the SketchUp model or, or the CAD file? Yeah, so a typical delivery schedule for us would be that, you know, let's say we're going to come and scan your house. We could scan it in about a day. About a week from then, we would deliver the point cloud data set as well as a square footage audit of the house, some like very basic conceptual floor plans. Uh, about two weeks after the scan, we would deliver a fully quality controlled Revit model. And then if you are a CAD client, about three weeks after that, we would deliver the full set of CAD sheets. So, you know, floor plans, elevations, reflected ceiling plans, et cetera. Yeah. And that, and that work is being done manually from the Revit model? Yeah. Um, anyone who has worked with a Revit to CAD workflow will know that the the BIM to CAD conversion process is a real pain. You can output sheets from Revit that look really nice. You can print them. They'll look great. But um, when you actually start going into them in AutoCAD, you'll notice that all the lines are broken. Things are not on the right layers. Um, it's not organized and clean and usable. So that that conversion process can take a very long time. So we handle all that for our clients and try to really deliver, you know, really immaculate CAD sheets that have, you know, not only been quality control, but they've also, you know, been converted into uh, our standards, you know, or we can work with our client standards as well. But our standards are very well researched. We have about 60 layers that are, you know, very, very organized and um, seem to suit just about everyone's needs. Super interesting. And your background is is very interesting too. It's it's an amazing story to hear where you started and how you got to what you do today. The work that you're doing is very interesting. What's the future look like for scan to plan I could imagine that with the technology that's quickly evolving, that that um, the work that you do will evolve with it. Do you have ideas on on what scan to plan will look like in five years from now, three, five years from now? You know, I actually don't think things are going to change that fast. Uh, I have, I did mention AI before. I have seen there are some AI applications that can take a point cloud and convert that into a Revit model. But um, what we found is that, you know, there's there are so many errors and there are so many things that go wrong with it that it's actually more cost and time effective to actually do it all manually. Um, I'm not sure really how sophisticated those AIs are going to get. We're definitely keeping an eye on it. But for now, um, I feel much more comfortable having a fully manual process. And I think our customers do as well. Um, they like to know that everything is, you know, being done by actual human beings. It's been reviewed and quality controlled by actual human beings. As far as where we're going with scan to plan, 
uh, we're really just starting to get our head around, you know, what is our addressable market? Uh, we're based in Troy, New York, so we're equidistant to Boston and New York City. We pretty much handle both of those regions. We'll handle kind of the tri-state region as well as New England. <laughs> and um, But we're looking to essentially understand really who our market is, try to reach out to as many people within this very densely populated area that we're in. I think once we've done that, we're looking to expand uh, more into um, the Southeast. So we have another uh, partner with with a couple of these same uh, Trimble X7 scanners uh, who is based in uh, Memphis. So we wanna start developing some business, Florida, the South, um, those areas. You know, eventually I would like to see we will basically handle a project anywhere nationwide if it's large enough. If it's a project over 10,000 square feet, I will, you know, consider, you know, putting somebody on a plane. But we would love to have, you know, regional scanning partners uh, throughout the country because we work in kind of a hub and spoke model. So as long as we have reliable scanning techs who can send us the data, we can basically handle everything else from our office here in Troy. So uh, they 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 go collect the data, they send it to us, then we wind up registering, modeling, and quality control and uh, doing the CAD output. We do that all here in-house. All right. Very interesting. So so starting to sort of grow out from where you are in in uh, upstate New York, grow out through the new northeast, move south, and then if anybody's if anybody's interested, right? If you're interested right now, if you're listening and you're interested and you're not in the northeast or currently in the Southeast uh, and you have a larger project, you can reach out to, to Owen yeah. and, and I'm sure that they'll, they'll be interested. Um, you can learn all about what, what Owen's projects are, are looking like and how, what the services look like at scan2plan.io. That's the website. His name is V Owen Bush. Uh, Scan2plan is the company. And again, the website is scan2plan.io. Owen, thanks for coming by and, uh, and joining me here today and sharing a little bit about Scan2Plan. It's uh, very interesting. Appreciate it, Mark. It's great to meet you, and uh, thanks for having me. If you liked this special bonus episode of Entree Architect Podcast, please share a rating on your podcast player right now. Just click it right now. Then write a review and share a link for this special episode with a friend. Entree Architect is a member of the Gable Media Podcast Network, the network dedicated to architects, engineers, and construction pros. Listen and subscribe to all the shows at gablemedia.com. That's G-A-B-L media.com. If you offer building products or serve the AEC industry, and you want to join me here at Entree Architect Studio, let's connect. Send me an email at podcast at entrearchitect.com. Thank you for listening to this special bonus episode here at Entree Architect Studio. I'll be back with our regular episode this Friday at the Entree Architect Podcast. Until then, love, learn, and share what you know. I've mentioned it to my family, but in terms of telling people like, oh yeah, we're doing this, I'm looking for projects. You got anything? Yeah. I'm, I'm not there yet because it scares the out of me. Dreaming of launching your own architecture firm? 
Well, buckle up for a wild ride with Emerging, the podcast that shares what it's really like to start an architecture firm. Where do we begin? We don't even know what type of business to formalize as. Is it an LLC? Is it an LLP? Like, how are taxes? I mean, the list is astronomical. Season one featured founders Jeffrey, Lexi, and Chris, owners of Level Studio Architecture, are your fearless guides on this unfiltered journey from napkin sketches to a thriving studio. One evening, stumbled into one last dive, we sat at the bar and pondered our postgraduate futures. Amidst the conversation, a napkin became the canvas for our aspirations, sketching plans and milestones, sealing our heartfelt commitment and shared dreams. In drawing down dreams on a napkin collectively, that <laughs> then, you know, in your head, you've rooted like, oh, I'm connected to these people, like long term. The process of starting an architecture practice brims with excitement and challenges, demanding meticulous planning, flawless execution, and unyielding resilience. I kind of hate the term because it's so overly used, but I think everybody knows imposter syndrome. And I think it's it's so real to this day. I, I, I don't know if it's with everybody, but with me, I'm always questioning like us. Can we do this? Are we ready to do this? Are we prepared? Can we do it? Did we just decide a name? <laughs> we did it, guys. Oh my the one that God. came out of nowhere. Woo! It came out of nowhere. I liked it. I saw it. Ready to turn your aspirations into reality? Follow the link in the show notes to subscribe to Emerging and chart your own path to architectural success. Calling all small firm architects. It's time to tap into your full potential with Entree Architects Context and Clarity, where inspiration meets innovation. Hey, it's Mark Arlapage, founder of Entree Architect, and I'm inviting you to join my two favorite co-hosts, Jeff Eccles and Katie Kangas, as they bring together authors, experts, and thought leaders for electric conversations with entrepreneur architects around the globe. It's not just a podcast, it's a community where dreams meet action. There is a simple equation there. And what for me, what that did, just doing that basic calculation was, it allowed me to compare what I had actually saved in my retirement accounts to what I thought a possible projected annual spend might be. Artists are temperamental, so beautiful design is gonna be a priority. When the job is done, we're gonna actually need to live in the house, not live with the person who designed it. <laughs> and so for me, the, the artistic skill, the architectural skill is most important. And so I would say like, that would be 60% of it, if not more. Gain insights to build a successful practice. Subscribe, engage, and let's redefine your future together. Join the Context and Clarity community, where every conversation adds to your blueprint for success. <laughs>